Welcome to the Start Me Up podcast, part of the Demcast Network. I'm Kimberly Johnson in D.C. Today I'm going to be talking with former double agent Naveed Jamali. He's an American commentator on national security and former FBI asset. He works for the U.S. Department of Defense as an intelligence officer in the United States Navy Reserve, and he's the author of How to Catch a Russian Spy. You have likely seen him on MSNBC. You've definitely seen him on Twitter. He writes for Newsweek. I have a lot of questions for him today. Uh, Feminist Next Door was supposed to be here, but something got in the way with her work, so she will be here later this month. And Steph Walton joins me this Wednesday. Can't wait to talk to her. Every time Steph is here, I feel like it's comfort food. I I really, I I love it. So um, FYI, I'll be doing a patrons-only podcast today, and I'll share my thoughts on the interview I did with Steve Schmidt last Wednesday. I'm going to read some of the comments from my listeners. I'm also briefly going to talk about my exciting and fun experience of getting a tonsil biopsy. You're not going to want to miss that one. (laughs) And also, that's, you know, my, my throat is a little sore today. It's not too bad. But I think that I have allergies too. But if my voice is funny, I'm just going to be blaming it on the tonsil biopsy. All right, before we get started, for the month of February, I'll be donating 5% of the podcast earnings to Planned Parenthood. If you're new to the show, the Start Me Up podcast is supported by listeners. I don't have corporate funding and I don't use advertisers. So that means the show survives on your support. Please consider becoming a patron for any dollar amount at patreon.com slash startmeup. When you sign up for a dollar, you get each podcast in your mailbox, and it's an inexpensive way to see if the show is for you. You can always upgrade later, and the more patrons there are, the more money that goes to Planned Parenthood. I do two shows per week, and then obviously we have the 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 five dollar tier which gets you into the patrons only segment that's recorded at least two times a month sometimes I have a guest sometimes I fly solo and today um, I'm going to be doing that solo thing it's usually a little bit more personal than the free show and um, you know as I said I'm going to talk about the Steve Schmidt interview today I have a lot a lot to say about that if you'd like to make a one-time donation just check out the text of the patreon description of this show I include my paypal info some folks like taking that route and if you do, that's awesome. If you want to sign up for uh, a monthly thing, that would be great. I, I am fully appreciative of all the support I can get. Don't forget, you can find Start Me Up on iTunes, Stitcher, and wherever podcasts are found. Please, please become a subscriber on iTunes. Also, give the show a positive review and a good rating if you like it. <laughs> and that's going to be it for now. Please enjoy my conversation with Naveed Jamali. Welcome, Naveed. Hey, thanks for having me. Thanks for being on the show. Um, I've got some questions for you. <laughs> All kinds of questions uh, hopefully, for you. <laughs> hopefully I have some answers. Uh, well, first, I just, you know, you wrote that book, How to Catch a Russian Spy. So um, I want to know a little bit about that. But before you tell us, I just want to briefly um, say that I had the opportunity to live in Moscow in 1980-81. It was my um, seventh grade school year. I had an opportunity to see what it was like to live under Soviet-style rule. And it's my understanding that you were never in Russia, but that you um, have worked with Russians. So I just wanted to kind of set that tone before uh, we get into it. And, I, you know, tell us about your book. Well, I mean, it's, <clears throat> you know, someone who lived in Soviet Russia, I think one of the things you can understand um, is the paranoia that comes with living in a surveillance, like an actual state that surveils its citizens. Yeah. And I think one of the things that's the most remarkable 
um, about dealing with Russians. And and I'll, I'll get into the story, but just so for, for your listeners to understand, I was dealing with actual Russian intelligence officers, so uh, members of the military who were trained, who went to academies, whose job it was, in fact, to come to the United States, uh, recruit and manage a network of U.S. spies. And that was wow. their job. So these were – this was not like – Lev Parnas or Fruman or Deripaska or, or Maria Butina. Like these were trained Soviet intelligence officers. So wow. it was very interesting to, to sit with them because that's what I did. I mean, every time I would meet with them, it was an interrogation. But you also got to learn uh, a lot about them and what they thought about the United States. And, and mm-hmm. to give sort of a window into that, like, uh, you know, the paranoia that they had. I mean, they, they really see the United States as their, their main enemy. I mean, mm-hmm. they're trained – in the same way that our military is trained to think about al-Qaeda or ISIS, hmm. that's what they think about the United States. They view us as their main adversary. It's not personal. It's, it's this, you know, we are their threat. And yeah. so when they come here to the United States, when these guys come here and they get off that Aeroflot flight in JFK, they consider themselves behind enemy lines, and they really act accordingly. It's a, it's a very paranoid way of living, and, and not completely wrong, although they their sense of the United States is skewed. Um, you know, it gives you an idea of sort of, what the Russians think of us. They mm-hmm. really, you know, it's, they view us as their enemy. I think Americans don't really fully appreciate how serious they, they, uh, they view us and how much they're geared to countering and, and attacking us. So what, um, explain exactly, for those who don't know, what is a double agent? Sure. So, <clears throat> you know, there's essentially, in, in simple terms, my job was to be recruited by the Russians as a spy. So, oh my God. You know, yeah, it, it, like a legit, like no, there, no, no bullshit. Like this is straight up. There's no gray here. Wow. This guy, this guy was an intelligence officer who's a GRU, an officer in the GRU, which is Russian military intelligence. Yes. He was a diplomat based out of the Russian mission to the United Nations here, here in New York. And um, my job was to allow him to recruit me. And now. A lot of people make it sound like, oh, this is easy, and it's not. I mean, these are incredibly paranoid people. Everything you do, they just, by nature of who they are, they just, they're just completely distrustful. And, you know, the goal here was to play him, but to make him think he was in complete control. So essentially, what I did was, under the guidance of the FBI, oversight of the FBI, um, you know, in like uh, mob parlance, I was a, a made man in the Russian spy organization, something that very few American, you know, civilians ever do. And it was, it was tough. It was really a challenging thing to kind of go through this process of assessment where the Russians sit down and they, they'll ask you questions. And then six months, they'll ask you the same question again. They'll see if there's, you know, um, as we heard from, uh, the truth never changes. Right. And Uh so it's the same thing in intelligence. It's the same thing that Adam Schiff would say is the same things the Russians would say that if you tell the truth about some arcane, mundane point, then six months later, that answer should be the same. And so they're constantly looking for any signs of deception, and they have this whole assessment piece, and and I can talk a little bit about how Carter Page kind of... Yeah. So Carter Page, to give you an idea, I did this for three years, which is a very, very long time, and a lot of that was the Russians assessing me. So they would give me tasks, they would ask me questions, they would then, you know, go back to Moscow, and then they you know, comes back to their intelligence officer here who would ask follow-up, and they're looking at not just what my answer is, but how I answered, if there's any deviation from previous answers, wow. if it makes sense. Carter Page, <clears throat> perfect example, if anyone has spoken to him, and, and I have uh, quite a bit, um, <sighs> Carter Page is nuts. 
and <laughs> if you read, <laughs> I mean, flat out crazy. Yeah. If you read, uh, if you read, um, you know, the testimony from the 2015 case where Carter Page was first approached by the Russians, they basically say, get whatever you can from that asshole and dump him. Hmm. And what the Russians did was they looked at Carter Page, they talked to him, they started, he was probably very eager to be recruited by the Russians, but the Russians looked at him and said, this guy's nuts. We can't trust him to do this. He's not manageable because, mm -hmm. you know, if someone, despite what people think, if someone has, you know, a drug habit or they're an alcoholic or they're mentally unstable, in many cases that makes them unpredictable mm -hmm. and it makes them unmanageable. And the Russians, you know, they don't want that from an, uh, from an asset, from a spy. So <clears throat> they very clearly started this process and then dumped him. And it's this interesting thing that I think all along Carter Page still kind of pines for the Russians. He still wants to, like, have them come back. But nonetheless, you know, getting back to my story and what I did, really a lot of it was just to make it through this assessment phase, to convince them that I was a real spy. And the whole time we were doing this, they had to feel they were in control. But re realistically, what I was doing was shifting them into the direction that we wanted them to go mm -hmm. and <clears throat> you know frankly we were just better than them they they never wow. sensed that this was a controlled operation and That's a crazy they kept going through it yeah and so you know a double agent in simple terms is someone who in my case um was recruited as a spy for another intelligence service but realist but in actuality is working for a separate intelligence service yeah. And then how do they how do they go about recruit? I mean, like, how do they know to recruit you? And then how does it begin? Yeah. Okay. So this is the story. So my <clears throat> my parents, um, you know, as I like to say, Navi Jamali, the name Navi Jamali, I can't trace my lineage back to the Mayflower. My parents were <laughs> <clears throat> both immigrants that came here in the '60s, and they here and they settled in New York, and they started this this defense. It's not a bookstore. It's a defense contracting firm, and the the company. Um, <clears throat> eventually got a, got contracts with the federal government to supply the government with information, with books. You know, uh, So if you go to West Point or Annapolis, the students don't buy the books. They're given to them. Um, and our company would provide, provide the books. We'd staff, stack libraries all over the world for the State Department. So anyway, <clears throat> one day in the late 80s, a man walked into my parents' office on Columbus Circle in Manhattan – um, gave my dad a list of books that were uh, on nuclear disarmament, you know, nonproliferation, and basically said, can you get these? And when my father asked, you know, where he was from, <coughs> excuse me, he said um, he was from the Soviet mission and uh, that he was this man named Colonel Alec Tolmikin. And long story short, he was a Soviet intelligence officer and uh, he gave, he made this pitch to my parents, left a list of books that he that they were to acquire, and after he left, 15 minutes later, the FBI walked in and said, "Look, this guy's a Soviet intelligence officer. Um, what does he want?" Yeah. And <clears throat> my parents gave him a list of books, and essentially, what ended up happening for t for two decades um, was the Soviets, and then when the Soviet Union collapsed, uh, the GRU, the KGB became the GRU, and same people it was a Soviet mission. Now it's the Russian mission. Same diplomats came back, um, and my parents were very dutifully. Uh, every piece of request that the Soviets and the Russians asked for would give to um, the FBI, and <clears throat> we became one of the longest-running um, FBI assets against the Soviets and the Russians, and certainly the 
one of the few, if not the only, multi-generational one. So it actually started with my parents. I grew up as a young child, you know, watching all this stuff. And, you know, it was pretty sinister. The, the Russians yeah. would show up at our, as a young boy, you know, my, with my dad. We'd be shopping and, like, Russian case officer would just walk across. Oh, my God. Uh, you know, and it was a very, you know, or they'd drive by our house. Ew. And it was this very sinister way of saying, we know where you live. Yeah. And my father, to his credit, um, basically made a big joke out of it. So growing up, we always, I always thought it was humorous. I always thought it was just, you know, that, oh, look at this. This is yeah. ridiculous. Um, and so when I, when I grew up and, you know, got older, I looked at this whole thing as sort of this weird, funny sort of thing. And, um, after September 11th, I wanted to join the Navy, join the military. I applied to not get in, um, but was told like, if you wanted to reapply, you know, find something that can beef up your resume. And I came up with this idea that perhaps this long running relationship with the FBI, that if I approached the FBI and said, Hey, can I help you? Um, they would look at this as work experience and write yeah. me a letter of recommendation. I, I was really naive. <laughs> and that's that's how this whole thing started. Wow. That started with my parents, and then it really started with my you know, desire to join the military. Um, and I'll say this, just just um, because there's you know there's so much about immigrants and you know with Trump now, um, you know my parents really uh, were both born in war-torn countries. My dad came from Pakistan, which you know he was born in right before partition between India and Pakistan and my mother was born, um, you know, at the close of the Second World War in Paris, and my grandfather was a <clears throat> was a French soldier who spent the duration, a good part of the war, in a prisoner of war camp. Wow. And uh, you know, so they both were born in like actual war torn mm -hmm. countries, and they came to the United States in the '60s, and you know, they were they protested the Vietnam War, and so when the FBI asked them for help. They felt very much that it was their duty as American citizens, their new country, to to help, but not too much. And mm -hmm. so my parents, you know, would give this information to the FBI. They never asked for anything in return. They just felt it was their – they never wrote a book. In fact, if I hadn't written this book, you know, their um, – what they did would have never been known, and they were yeah. okay with that. They just felt it was sort of their duty as new citizens to do this. And, you know, it sort of strikes me that – in many ways, immigrants hold the value and the ideals of what it means to be American yeah. in, in, in higher regard than, you know, in some cases, you know, many, many generation-long Americans mm -hmm. who are, you know, even our legislators. So they just felt it was the right thing to do, and, you know, they never got a dime out of this. They never got um, help from the FBI. In fact, the FBI would ask them, can we take you out to dinner? And they'd say, no, that's quite all right. Thank you wow. very much. They they never wanted a thing in return. They just felt it was this duty to uh, to help. Well, the use of the word sinister is perfect. Uh, you know, I have been searching for a description to describe Soviet rule, and sinister mm. is perfection. Um, you know, I've said this many times on the podcast, but, you know, I was 12 years old when I lived over there, and um, just getting off the plane for the very first time, and, and going through customs, the way that the Soviet, you know, airport guys, I mean, and they were these young guys, you know, probably 20, 21 years old, the way that they would look at you, um, I mean, especially me, I was such a geek. 
and and I mean that literally. I had these big thick glasses and I was I mean I was tall, but still I was a 12-year-old geek and they they looked at me as if I was a spy and that you know I was going over there to damage their country. And so this was something that, you know, followed you. I had a, a, an amazing experience living over there. Um, but I, you know, I explain it as it was like living in a prison and I had privileges or, you know, a yeah. police state. But, it, it, you know, I mean, we my family had a nice apartment and we got to shop at special places to buy food. And um, I did also because my father was a correspondent as opposed to a diplomat. Diplomats got a little bit more than we did. Like the kids got to ride the American school bus, which I was always very jealous about. But what wound up happening was I took Russian transportation, whether it was a, a bus or a taxi. So I got the opportunity, looking back now, I can say I had the more authentic experience, more so than my um, my schoolmates. Um, right. But the sinister thing, I mean, it really, that's what it is. There was this kind of air that hung over everything that you knew if you did something wrong, um, you would be in big fucking trouble. And so, yeah. uh, you know, what I want to ask you, and I asked this question, I spoke with Steve Schmidt last Wednesday. Now, um, he gave me an answer, and I'd like to see what you say. Uh, if Trump, <laughs> and, and now this is, <laughs> this is basically uh, not coming from, I, I don't know how much you'd be able to gather from your experience, but maybe a lot, so I don't know, um, as a double sure. agent. But if Trump wins a second term, do you think the U.S. is going to become like a modern-day Russia, like an oligarchy? Do you see, or, or, or let me ask, what direction well, do I you think, see us going? I, I, look, I, I think I think he very much. Um, I, I don't think this is like an academic question or a theoretical one. I, I really think this is how you know Trump thinks. He's not a. No one would ever accuse him of being a deep thinker. No. He's very much you know. He wear. He, there's no layers to this onion here. I mean, this is a very <laughs> straightforward person. Whatever you think of him, I mean, yeah. pretty simple person to explain. Yeah, look. He wants power, yeah. and you know, you go to his roots. Um, <clears throat> he is someone who's never really had a job, right? He's always worked mm -hmm. for his, you know, his family's company, and even there, he's never had a board of directors. He's never had someone he's answered to. He's just, you know, he's he's what he is, Kimberly. To me, is the definition of white privilege. Mm -hmm. I mean, the this oh, yeah. white male privilege, like the totally someone who has never had to work for anything. It's just been handed to him. So. Whereas you know you might think of a traditional authoritarian or oligarch as look in, <laughs> and I don't say this approvingly, but you know in many cases those people had to fight and kill to get right, to where they yeah. they had to put some you know you know some sweat equity if you will. Uh, that's not Trump. Trump yeah. it's always been he's handed it's been handed things to him. So I think yes, he is very much clearly someone who you know as he said I could shoot someone on Fifth mm -hmm. Avenue and nothing would happen to. Him. We're seeing that now. I believe that he really thinks that way. I mean, I don't. I, I believe him when he says that. And I think most people should, and that's the way he thinks. But I don't think he looks at this and says, "I want to be," you know, that he has some sort of larger scale vision here. I don't think he does. I think he just sees things as what benefits him. It's not even like this moral compass. You know, it's not good or bad. He doesn't think of good or bad. He just thinks about things that benefit, benefit him and things yeah. that don't. And things that benefit him, he's interested. And if they don't right. benefit him, he's not interested. So. I think that's really, you know, the way that this this is going to go. And and look, that's not. I don't think those are attributes that are conducive to being a good president. <laughs> I mean, they're just not. I mean, you, you can't think of your yourself yourself. Right. <laughs> you think of the country. Do you think though that if he were to win a second term, that that's it? Like, I mean, the way I view it, 
is I think democracy will American democracy will die and it will become like a Russian oligarchy. And then I don't know how long before there's another change. Yeah. I, you know, this is a, and I don't mean to, to parry. I, I don't know. I mean, yeah. I think, I think that, um, I like to think that the answer is no. I'm very concerned that he is going to win a second term. Mm-hmm. I don't say that because it's, you know, I'm a registered Democrat. I don't say that because I, I want it. I just think objectively yeah. there's a very strong likelihood that he will. Um, and yeah, I think that he wants it to be sort of this, he, look, he wants his, he wants his son and his daughter and he wants his family to be the sort of dynasty like mm-hmm. the Kennedys. We've, yeah. we've heard reporting of this. So yeah, I think in that regard, he wants to see this continue. And if, Look, if he could be president for life, he'd, he'd be yeah. thrilled with that. Um, you know, can it? Can the institutions parry this? Um, one would hope. I mean, I mm-hmm. you know, I I like to think that there is some obje- objectivity still in there, and that there is some firewall that can contain them, and that you know, this isn't going to go beyond 2024. And mm-hmm. I don't know what kind of damage he can do in the next four years. I think it'll be bad. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I guess the short answer is. I think he wants to. I don't know if the institutions will be able to uh, restrain him. I, that's that's really the question. Is we know what he wants to do. We know that there's a good chance he will win. Can our institutions? Can our democracy contain him? I don't know. I mean, it hasn't so far. Well, so I mean, I think a lot would also depend on um, the Senate and the House. I mean, if 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 of the course. Democrats take over the Senate and keep the House, then it would be much more difficult for. I mean, obviously, as what you said is true we would go through all kinds of damage and, and it would be awful, but perhaps the country could survive. I think that if we, um, if we're unable to take the Senate and God forbid we lose the house, even if we just keep the house, I think the oligarchy thing could, could be a real. So, so here's the thing, Kimberly, and, and you know, I've lived in New York most of my life and Boston and, and I've lived in the East coast and I've, you know, I'm sort of this, this, I was this Brown kid raised believing that, you know, I could do whatever I mm-hmm. wanted to do and be whatever I wanted to be. And that was because I lived in New York City. Um, yeah. But I since <laughs> moved to the West Coast. And I got to tell you, I, I think a lot of Democrats and I'm in New York today and, you know, I'm, I'm here actually in Newsweek and talking to my colleagues. I don't think that a lot of Democrats appreciate how much anger there is by you know, white rural Americans yeah. and how much power they have. Look, mm-hmm. you know, North Dakota and South Dakota – what does North Dakota have, like 700,000 people in the whole state? It's less people than you know, most major East Coast or West Coast cities have. Yeah. Seattle, where I live, has 800,000 in the city. Right. That's bigger than some, the population of some states. They might have one or two uh, you know, members of Congress, but they have two senators. And those states are like 99.9999% white. They're going to mm-hmm. vote Trump. They're always going to have two senators. And as a result, you have this minority block that is – you're not going to flip those states. I mean those people – they. It, it couldn't be more of a polar opposite. They look at impeachment and they're thrilled. This is what they want. They don't, you know, it, what they want and is is they want to. This is a reaction to having a black president. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's what this is. Yes. And for them, they don't care about logic. They don't care about le- legal things. What they want to see is their. They see their power shrinking. They feel that they've been passed over, and they want that white entitlement protected. I mean, mm-hmm. that's really what this is about. And you know. Uh, it would do respect to Steve Schmidt and, and, and Rick and, and all the other you know former you know GOPers who are white. I don't think they appreciate what it means to be a minority in this no, country. No, I don't think they do either. When this is happening, or Tom Nichols, who 
Uh, yeah, yeah, that's another story. But but you know this is this <laughs> insufferable. This is, you know I, these guys. It really pisses me off to sort of see these guys um, get a get a voice in this. Yeah. And it's like, and I, I like Steve. I you know we were both on MSM. He's still on MSNBC, yeah. and I still you know I actually respect a lot of what he says. But the but is this: is there that GOP, that Republican Party? This racism that we're seeing, and this mm-hmm. is, look, what Trump is, is, is it's white nationalism, right? White nationalism is not white supremacy. It's not Nazism. It is this belief that, that you know, the United States should be a white ethno-Christian state, that mm-hmm. um, this is a state that was a country that was founded for that. And it's not, you know, people who are white nationalists will tell you, look, okay, we don't hate blacks or, or Latinxes, or we don't hate his, you know, we don't hate these people. We just want them... This isn't the country, and they should go to their own country. It's right. this very carefully curated racism, mm-hmm. but there's a lot of people that agree with that, yeah. and it's frightening. And for them, they look at Trump, they look at you know these policies that he's putting forward, the the bigotry, the punishment towards people of color, to transgendered people, and it makes them happy. That's what they want. They don't care that he's you know destroying farms or not helping That's them with jobs or. <clears throat> destroying our stance, they don't care. They want to see, they're angry. And he feeds into their anger. And frankly, that anger and that bigotry and that racism, it predates Trump. Mm-hmm. It's just been oh, yeah. ignored. And now he's giving them a voice. And man, they're not, you know, as long as he keeps giving them a voice, mm-hmm. they're not going to abandon him. And I'll say the one last thing about this is that, you know, when you think about the Democratic Party, the thing that we have, that the Democrats have going against them is what? Is the fact that there's so much diversity in mm-hmm. it. There's no one single. You have, you know, Bernie Sanders on one end. You have Joe Joe Biden in the middle. You have, you had, you know, Kamala Harris and and um, you know Cory Booker on the other end. And there's a lot of diversity. And yeah. Republicans don't have that. Mm-hmm. They they they're literally it's it is you know it's like China one voice. Like there's so they don't have to push hard. They just have to stick with Trump, and that's mm-hmm. all that they have to do. It's the only message they have to keep. And it's much easier to corral. You know, you're not going to have Republicans who are going to vote for anyone else. I yeah. mean, it's just not going to happen. So, you know, again, I, I wish that, um, you know, my colleagues who very openly speak out against Trump and are never Trumpers would at least talk a little bit about how we got here and the racism that existed in their party that really brought Trump in. That was but they're the not going to do Obama. that. They're not going to do that. In fact, when I was speaking with Steve Schmidt, he did um, kind of put, first of all, he blamed the Democratic Party for Trump a little bit. You know, I mean, he, he put some of the onus on the Democratic Party. But and I asked him about the Russian interference, which I initially I mean, I had always respected him too. obviously understanding that our policy ideas are going to be different. But in the end, that we a both saw Trump as an existential threat and b that rush the Russian attack and, and the Russian effort to manipulate the election um, is such a big deal. And I was appreciative because I don't see I would like to see every night or every day all of the uh, you know political shows just reminding people whether it's a countdown day you know it's been X amount of days since Russia's been attacking the United States and here's how they're doing it or it's just some kind of a I know you can't do a news story repeating yourself every night but like a reminder because if they had hit our buildings if they had hit historical sites it would be on the news 24 seven um, so I you yeah, know but you know can I can I just say one thing to that the <laughs> thing is that. What people really don't want to admit is that what Russia did, yes, they attacked us, and, and the problem is this, 
is what they did was no different than inflaming um, tensions between the Sunni and the Shia in Iraq, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, during <clears throat> when when uh, Saddam was in power, you know, we would use <clears throat> Iraq as a buffer to keep Iran down. And then when, when Iraq got too big, we'd use Iran as a buffer to mm-hmm. keep Iraq down. All the Russians did was look at the racial bigotry, the tension the, yeah. between, you know, between these two groups and inflame it. So yes, they attacked us, but the reality is, is it was a, it was like a, it wasn't. And this is the part that I, I drives me nuts when we talk about like when they have legal correspondence on legal analysts is that this is all about race. And what the Russians did was understand the divisiveness that exists in this country, and stoke it. Mm-hmm. And you know, again, it goes back to this fact that we have two Americas here. We have you know people that live in the middle of the country that have a very different view from the people that live on the coast. Mm-hmm. And I don't know that you can ever reconcile them. And the Russians, you know, exploited that existing hatred, frankly. Well, absolutely um, they did. And then they also targeted those three states that mm-hmm. um, ultimately, you, you know, targeted electorally, understanding that if they pushed Jill Stein in, was it Michigan, uh, Wisconsin, yep. and Ohio, I think, or Pennsylvania, um, that I don't remember those three, whatever those three states were, that they specifically focused them and pushed people to vote for Jill Stein and that they used Bernie Sanders. Um, they, they used him to pit, you know, they, they saw that there was obviously a Democratic divide with the Sanders and Clinton voters and so that they used that also. Um, and so, yes, you're right. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And I mean, I'm, I, and they did do a whole thing with Black Lives Matter where they, I think they like put yep. up a fake Black Lives Matter thing and, uh, or they pit each other. They did the same thing with the vaccine debate where they would pit each other, mm-hmm. you know, us against each other. Um, and, and that's, that's their, and, you know, when you lived in Soviet Russia, I mean, that's their modus operandi. They're not, they don't, they don't care about Trump any more than they right. cared about Jill Stein, any more than they cared about anything. They just want, this they want all, the power. They, they want, want chaos. The power. Yeah, yeah. They want to, they want to topple us. And what they've found, frankly, is, is something that existed. I mean, they didn't create the racism. No, that, or right. The, yeah. They just the divisiveness that lives here. They just exploited it. it. Yeah. And so when you're, you're right, like when I think about, how this is covered, you know, it really does frustrate me that um, instead the angle is, you know, like this very narrow legal focus or this very mm-hmm. narrow, um, it, or just it's become a very narrow legal focus. And the Democrats have taken the same thing. You know, and I, I've met plenty of, of, you know, I met Schiff and, and Swalwell, and I have huge respect for both, uh, and Jackie Spears especially. Yeah. Um, but like, it, it pisses me off that, you know, there's not an honest account here, that yeah. this is. You know, race is a big, big deal. There's a lot of Americans that are furious that we had a black president, and this played mm-hmm. into them. And they were furious the concept of a woman being president. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you know, sort of these white men. And you know, this is not me trying to be divisive or or, or virtue signaling, no, as people would not. say. It's just a factual thing, and the yeah. Russians assessed that, mm-hmm. and they exploited it. They knew that propaganda could be used to inflame, you know, inflame serious tensions. And that's what they did. And we play, we fell right into it. And, you know, it's, it just, it, it frustrates me that instead the focus is like this sort of narrow, narrow folk, narrow legal thing. And the reality, Kimberly, is like talking to a lot of um, legislators. Uh, Eric Swall, one of the greatest things he told me was like, uh, Look, this is morally wrong. The mm-hmm. problem is that there's no legal code for a lot of the actions yeah. the Trump team did because no one envisioned you'd ever have someone right. like this. And it's time to update that. Like yeah. 
but you know, they don't come, like no one will come out and be like, this is not right. Like this is, yeah. you know, this is against them. Like we should have a moral compass and that moral compass should dictate to some degree, you know, how we tell the American people what's going on. And, you know, Fox does it right. Right. You well, know, that, that, I totally agree. I mean, and that's exactly what I would like to see. And I, you know, I mean, I'm certainly not here to dictate to anyone how to run their newscasts. Sure. But I wish that it was more, you know, I mean, Rachel Maddow covers it more so than anybody that I've seen. But it, like you said, it's either coming from a legal angle or it's just coming from a here's what happened, here's how they're connected angle. And I, you know, I mean, if uh, I was in a grocery store a couple of months ago and I spoke with this young woman and I asked her, I said, do you know that uh, Russia is attacking our country right now? And she looked at me like, oh, what are you talking about? And I said, well, they're not, you know, they're not uh, using bombs or nuclear weapons or anything like that, but they're attacking our social media and they're manipulating people with false information and she hadn't heard and you know i mean she she's not like me she's not on twitter 24 7 in the political world but you know she's definitely she pays attention to the news and she understands the candidates and all of that and i just told her i said well you you should look it up don't take my word you know look it up with with um respectable news sources and read what you can and then tell your friends because people just don't know. And I wish that, like you said, I mean, the news media as well as, um, you know, the candidates or, you know, like the presidential candidates or just people like Eric Swalwell, the legislators, I wish they would talk about it more. But, you know, like getting back to Steve Schmidt, he, he wanted to give credit to Republicans for 2018 because he said a lot of uh, white, and I'm sure there was a decent portion, but of, you know, people, you know, white people in rural America were fed up with Trump and they came out in 2018 and I'm sure they did. But judging from who won and the kind of uh, wins we saw with a lot of women, people of color, it seems to me the Democrats were highly motivated. And we, we don't just look at the Republicans and go, gee, thanks for helping us in 2018. I don't think Steve yeah, Schmidt was right they, there. They, that's exactly right. And, you know, look, <clears throat> what I can tell you from having dealt with the Russians, like not, you know, not this disinformation, not as all of us have been the recipient of disinformation or, or, you know, what I can tell you is dealing with a Russian intelligence officer and watching the Soviet Union from, again, the late 80s to, you know, for 20 years, their intelligence collection efforts here in New York, in the U.S., is that, look, you don't collect intelligence against a country because you're friendly with them. <laughs> you know, you collect milita- military intelligence yeah. against a country because you are either concerned that you know about going to war with them or you want to make sure that you always have an edge on them. Yeah. And that is their they've look for from the Soviet Union to present, they've looked at the United States as I don't want to say an enemy, but darn near close to it. Mm-hmm. And you know, I don't think Americans appreciate how um demoralizing the collapse of the Soviet Union was and they blame yeah. the United States for that. There's a real like nationalistic viewpoint that they have that the success of their country is tied to the defeat of ours. Mm-hmm. I mean, they really believe yes. that. And, you know, <clears throat> they're committed to that. And again, I don't feel like Americans appreciate that, that, you know, if, if you don't understand that and appreciate and accept that, which is not a partisan talking point, that's mm-hmm. just Russia's, you know, viewpoint. And when you have Republicans who are going, I don't see what the problem with Russia is. It's like, dude, I spent three years with them. Like they were, you know, they wanted to collect the most sensitive military mm-hmm. secrets we have. That's not like some talk, some political talking point. Like that is them specifically trying to undermine our national security. Who does that? 
people who do that do that because they're in competition. They're in, mm-hmm. you know, basically what Russia is is with us is they're in a hot intelligence war with us. They will do everything short of getting into open armed conflict with mm-hmm. us. But anything be- below that is fair game because they want to see us tumble, and they're going to push as hard as they can. And if you don't understand and appreciate that threat, we're screwed. And that's the thing like where Republicans have failed us. The, the, probably the worst is at least focusing on national security, saying, you know, I mean, when they, I don't understand what the problem with Russia is. And I'm like, they get the same intelligence briefs as, you know, in many regards as the president. Like they absolutely know what the threat Russia poses and when the, and what Russia wishes to do. And, you know, I asked Eric Swall, and I'll say it again to the members of Congress, like, I wish they would declassify to the American public, not this Facebook ad buys, or I wish they would declassify to the American public, give them a, a sense of how big the Russian intelligence network here hmm. in the United States is. Because if we are concerned about al-Qaeda and ISIS networks, mm-hmm. you know, forming the United States, counterterrorism, we should have the American public be aware of the intelligence efforts of these countries. Yeah. They're not insignificant. And it's not, you know, again, my job was not, this was not, I didn't do Facebook or some disinformation campaign. This was me dealing with a Russian intelligence Mm -hmm. officer to spy on our country, to harm it. Like, you can't get any more black and white than that. (laughs) They are doing that right now. There are people who are, you know, engaged by Russian intelligence to harm this country and to act as their agents. And I wish that that is something that would become more public and yeah. you know we would start taking talking about that because it's a real problem and maria butina is you know she's she's a throwaway there's there are probably a lot more people like that in this country and you know it should scare people it yeah. really should and it doesn't well let me ask you when you're saying yeah. that you think it's um very likely or possible that trump would be reelected, do you think it's because of um the white Americans and the race, or do you think it's Russia? Do you think it's a combination? I, I don't, I mean, look, I, I, we got to be careful how much power we ascribe to Russia. Russia mm-hmm. is, is certainly putting their thumb on the scales here, but they're not like sitting back and actually able to, you know, actually get Trump elected. I mean, Trump is going to interfere with the, you know, he already is, we yeah. already see him. But yeah, I, I think at the end of the day, this is very much, it, it's like, People get uncomfortable with you say this, but it it is absolutely about race. I mean, that is the reason you know <clears throat> race and and sexism and you know uh, look it's it's telling that the Democratic Party basically has no people of color as, as presidential candidates. So the candidates that were people of color were quickly kind of put aside, and I think it was probably because the Democratic Party realized, and it's sad to say this that. Um, you know, to have a minority presidential candidate would have been really tough against Trump. Mm-hmm. You know, it would have been harkened back to Obama, and mm-hmm. you know, we saw what happened with that. And so the DNC was like, "You're not going to appeal to the, the heartland," and they didn't get any. You know, they weren't able to raise money. Yeah, that was actually um, so, the the next question so, I wanted to ask you is because I saw your tweet, um, and you were understandably disappointed that there's, you know, that's exactly what yeah. you just said that there's only um, white people now in the lead. And and, and and race is complete as a as a talking point in inequality, you know, um, has completely evaporated. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Instead, it's everyone's pivoting to the heartland. And how can we get you know, it's, it's just it's infuriating. I, you know, I've talked it to is. plenty of um, 
minorities and people of color and people from disenfranchised communities. And, you know, I had a very famous, uh, I won't say their name, but a minority uh, journalist tell me, um, you know, uh, you can put uh, an African-American in a voting booth and 99.99999% they'll always vote for Democrat. Mm -hmm. You put a white person in a voting booth, it's not a sure shot mm -hmm. as to whether – it's even a Democrat, white Democrat. It's not a sure shot what they're going to vote for. Yeah. They're going to vote for Trump or not. I mean there's always that possibility. And it's frustrating to many people of color who look at this and say, what more do we need to do to right. become – you know, we're like your backbone, and we get passed over because of the 800,000 people in North Dakota. Mm -hmm. Like yeah. it's just – it's infuriating. Um, but I understand, like you know, part of the calculus is how do you beat Trump? Right. And again, it goes it goes back to what you know, Steve Schmidt and and, and Rick and, and all these other people is that it, we the electoral college and the fact that we're being held hostage, mm -hmm. this minority group that is primarily Republican, primarily white, primarily in the middle of the country, is infuriating. Mm -hmm. I mean, these are not people that want the country to move forward. They don't. There's no. It's. It's yeah, and it's. I think it's more caustic than whatever the Russians are doing, and I'm sure they're doing plenty. But you know that is. How do we get past that as a country? But that's perhaps the yeah. biggest problem is that we're you know we're driven by this minority, this increasingly smaller and smaller minority group, you know, that doesn't want to see change, mm -hmm. and we're kind of stuck. I mean. It's it's infuriating again. Well, just... and this in this particular case too, because we have Trump. I mean, imagine if Hillary Clinton would have won in 2016. Um, it's not to say that this country wouldn't be racist. Of course, we you know it would kind sure. of be like the same situation with Obama and the racism that we saw with him. We would see the sexism and yeah. uh, all of that with with Hillary. Absolutely. Um, and you know, I wanted to bring up though that I mean, we've we don't have people of color in the race right now, at least viable. Um, we yeah. do have two women, and Klobuchar is probably not, in, in my opinion, she's not viable at this point, and, and let's see what happens tonight. I don't think she's going to be, so that would leave Warren, and obviously, so there's there's at least a woman in it, but, but my feeling is just because exactly of everything that you're saying, Warren is my first choice. I think she would be yeah. the best person for the job, but, um, you know, of course, I'm going to vote for the Democratic nominee, no matter who it is. Because of course. It's, it's not going to be Tulsi, and uh, <laughs> I'm not. Don't have to worry <laughs> about voting for her. But um, I, I know at this point, anything can happen. But I think Biden is going to be the nominee, and I was just wondering. I think so too. Yeah, and then I, now, I, I, I think so too, and I think that exactly what you said. That you know, I don't know how I feel about this, but I, I can understand. It. I think the Democratic yeah. Party, you know, basically is too fractured right now, right? Yeah. We, you know, that's just. That's not an opinion. It's just mm -hmm. when you have these kind of different candidates, you're you're drawing. You know, you've got again Bernie Sanders on one end, Biden in the middle, mm -hmm. Warren on the other end. Like mm -hmm. these are these are people that are going to draw different. You know, the the Democratic Party in a lot of ways this is great has diversity, but in a lot of ways for a presidential primary, that's incredibly difficult, right? Like yeah. you hope that this diversity when we get it when there is a candidate that people will rally behind that candidate. You're right. I think at the end of the day, what has to, what the Democratic Party has, has decided is that you need an older white man because <sighs> what they saw as a result of Obama is that people didn't want to see a woman. They didn't want to mm -hmm. see a minority. They don't want to see someone young. They don't want to see. I mean, um, you know, LGBTQ. Like I, I think that you know, if it's a, 
to, to Pete Buttigieg, who I have a you know I think actually you know he has a long future in the Democratic Party. Mm-hmm, me too. I think he, even though he's openly gay and and that's and um, I think the fact that he's a white man mm-hmm. still you know appeals yeah, to people. Right. Like they will they would put that aside. Yeah, their bigotry. But look, it just feels like the Democratic calculus here is. Um, you know, a straight, older white man is the counter to Trump. And that's got to be mm-hmm. – it's, it's got to be Biden. Um, you know, I, I don't know how I feel about that personally. Right. Um, but, like, it's most likely going to be, going to be that. Who I mean, do that's you just think really, he should – who, who sh- should be his VP pick? That's a very good question. I mean, I I've know. heard some I'm, people say, you know, I've talked about her before uh, several times on the show, but there's another woman at my grocery store who's a black woman. She's my age. And we always talk about politics. I absolutely adore her. And she's like strong that it has to be Biden. Well, Bloomberg, too. But I think Biden has always been her number one choice. Um, but she believes that this is something that doesn't even think a woman should be VP. She thinks that it should be men. And she's totally up for like Castro or doesn't have to be two white men. But she does think I, I can't remember. If, I don't think she said Warren. But I mean, I've heard the argument made that Warren would be a good choice for his VP pick because you could. OK, you're not necessarily going to get all of the Bernie supporters over to the Warren camp, but there would be a huge group like, for instance, I no longer support Bernie Sanders, but I was a huge Bernie Sanders supporter in 2016. I feel differently about him. I still like his vision, but the man himself, I'm not so, I don't trust. But um, Warren's got everything that, you know, I loved about what can he Can I tell you a Warren, I think I've said this right. Can I tell, tell you a Warren story, sure. like a personal story about, so um, years ago I was traveling through Reagan through Reagan uh, Airport and <clears throat> through DCA, and um, this was before Warren announced that she was running for president. This was probably 2017, 2018, um, and I'm waiting for my flight, and there's Elizabeth Warren, and I went up to her, and you know, there's people like, oh my God, there's Elizabeth Warren, yeah. and she was just there with her husband, and and um, just sitting there, and I went up to her and I said, hey, you know, I'm, I'm, it's so great to meet you. I'm on MSNBC, and I told her my, my little bit of my background. And she gave me uh, a good 15 to 20 minutes of undivided attention wow. as we talked about politics and Trump. And you know what? It was like there was no cameras around. There was mm-hmm. no one around, literally. I mean, she's sitting in an airport. And the way that she spoke to me – so whatever you think about her politics or her mm-hmm. her policies or anything, just as a human being, she just treated me incredibly decently. Mm-hmm. She treated me as an equal, didn't speak down to me, didn't like act – you know, oh my God, I got to get away from this. Right. You know, this guy just sat there and talked to me. And then when I finished, someone else went up to her, and she talked to that person the exact same wow. way she spoke to me. It was a very, um, and again, just like a very honest moment. And I think she's a very, you know, in that regard, she's probably that's probably who she is. I mean, there was yeah. again, there was no camera. She had nothing to gain by 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 taking the conversation, and it was pretty remarkable. However, that being said, like. You know, when you ask about who should be the VP, I really worry that there's a lot of people yeah. who are not okay with a with a woman in this kind of position. And you know, the Democrats have to make a decision. It's yeah. a very tough one. Do they appeal to people like me or your friend? You know, you know, your friend in the grocery store, even though she says she wants a, a man as a VP, um, or do they, you know, try to go more moderate in the hopes that like those moderate voters are either not going to sit home or not vote for Trump and instead vote for them. Mm-hmm. 
I, I'm not a pollster. I don't know where the numbers yeah. are. I can tell you it as a it pisses me off as a minority that like again we have to sort of take the back seat because we we don't want to offend sort of right. moderate white America. Yeah. Well, I mean, as a woman, I feel exactly the same way. I think Elizabeth yes, Warren. Sh- is, I mean, yeah, yeah the, a, a woman or a minority, like the same thing. Like yeah. it's do we ever get a say in this? Like when do, when does <laughs> our vote matter? And, you know, Kimberly, what I feel is that, and I think m- many Americans feel this too, is that there's, we're at the precipice of fundamental change. Mm-hmm. We just can't see it yet. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this is the sort of last gasp of a, yes. of a and we, you know, we see, we see it, look, frankly, you see it all across Europe, Australia, New Zealand, like there's the countries where that were fun, founded by sort of, white straight men, white rich men, you know, mm-hmm. Brexit. I mean, all France is no different. Um, you see it that as these countries become more diverse, there's a, as I call it, the browning of America, like mm-hmm. as, as color shifts, as gender shifts, as, as equality really starts to creep up, this is really upsetting a lot of people and mm-hmm. they're fighting back. Yeah. And well, and that's the thing it. Is that yeah. They don't have the numbers. Upset, they just don't motivated. have the numbers. At a certain point, <clears throat> are we going to you know, be like Iraq where you have a minority group that rules the majority and no country in history has that worked out for. I mean, yeah. it just doesn't. Well, South one, Africa, I mean, you can't do it. One thing that I would like to say, I mean, and to your point that things are changing, um, as a woman, yes, it's like so frustrating because I, I'd love to see whether it's, I mean, we've seen a black man, God, I would love to see a black woman, but just a woman, um, run this country. But the, the, and and it does feel like sometimes when are we going to get our shot? How long do we have to sit back and wait? But the, the good news is I'm an advocate for the equal rights amendment and it just passed in Virginia and I became an equal rights advocate in 2012. I was not aware that it hadn't, you know, gone through. I, I, I just assumed that we had constitutional gender equality. And although I remember hearing the Equal Rights Amendment back when I was younger, I, I never knew the full story. So anyway, um, interestingly, it had stalled back in the 80s and we needed three more states because it takes 38 states to ratify an amendment. So those the, the, we had 35 states ratified up until the 80s and then there was that stupid deadline that expired and then nothing for all these years until 2017 the first year trump was president nevada yeah nevada ratifies and then the following year um it was illinois and then just last month we finally got virginia and that's it so i think that the idea is you know as as frustrating as it is um it's going to happen. We're going to get a woman. We're going to get a woman of color. Yeah. We're, we're going to have a ticket where no white people are on it whatsoever. Um, I don't know how long it's going to take, but it's going to get there. And I, and I totally agree with you because usually what motivates people is fear and discomfort. And that's like rampant. So, <laughs> you know, I mean, yeah, I think. Yeah, well, and you know, you just look at history. Like you can't have a country, uh, you know, that, that where a minority rules a majority. Right, compl- it just doesn't work. diametrically opposed. It just never lasts. No. And look, <clears throat> I think that's what we're seeing here. I mean, in many ways, this is, this is this fundamental change, and no one wants to, when you have change, when you have a trading of, of power bases, no one, you know, the, <clears throat> the, the, the power in charge is not going to be thrilled with it. They're not going to go totally peacefully. And this is, in many ways, it, it, is, a, it is that change that's happening. It might be generational, but it's happening. Mm-hmm. The numbers, you know, they, despite what Mitch McConnell wants to do, and that's why he's, you know, putting conservative judges judges yeah. in, in 
<clears throat> lifetime appointments because he knows that um, he can't fight the fundamental change yeah. of the demographics. I, I don't think it'll be successful. Uh, however, it's you know when that tipping of the balance will happen, I don't know. But I feel like we're all witnessing this massive change, historical change. Where again, we're we're witnessing it at the precipice. We just mm-hmm. can't see that that like. <laughs> where the cliff ends, and we, right. and I say this in a positive way, where that shift actually happens. Yeah. But we all know it's going to happen. I mean, it, it's they can't stop this kind of change, and you know, it might be it might be generational, maybe fifty years, might be a hundred years, but like uh, depressingly as that might seem, like this is still a road in that direction. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it is, yeah, and you know, again, I go back to I know we're running out of time, but like one of the last things I'll say about. The coverage of this, you know, it really frustrates me that that media we can't have this discussion. Yeah, that we can't have this discussion about race and how it plays in, how inherent bias plays in, how you know, really, it, it's not even necessarily. You know what? I should take this back. I don't want to say it's racism because that's not exactly right. It's white fear. Yes, it's white fear of change, and I think that without talking about this, you know, it's the same thing. That, you know, I grew up um, when the AIDS epidemic hit and, you know, people were like, mm-hmm. you can't catch it from sitting on a toilet, you know, sitting a toilet seat or shaking mm-hmm. someone's hand. Like, you know, <clears throat> there, there almost needs to be that, like this idea that we should have this conversation is probably the way forward that, mm-hmm. you know, there's people shouldn't be scared of change. You know, Obama was president. Nothing happened to people. Like they weren't. <laughs> yeah, it they, was a great time. <laughs> they're ter- right. They're terrified of it. And I think that. The media doesn't want to touch it because it's a very sensitive topic. But, you know, again, it's like, what about people like us? They don't want to, again, it's always this head nod, this, you know, this deference to, to, to white men. Like, yeah, it's we don't want to upset so them. Old. <laughs> but we're okay with upsetting minorities or women. Right. Like, what the hell? What the yeah. fuck? When do we get like a chance that says, you know what? We're okay upsetting white men because we don't want to upset women and minorities. Like, when do we count? I guess. Exactly. Well, I think it's coming. It's just like you said. We don't know exactly how long it's going to take, but um, the country's definitely changing with demographics, and so it is literally a matter of time. But here's my last question for you. Sure. Um, What advice do you have for folks who are feeling defeated, especially after last week? That's a great question. I think it's what we just said, that change is coming, and change is, is inevitable, that despite the, uh, you know, attempts to try to stop it, to try to, um, you know, shift it, it, it's just a matter of, of course. I mean, there's, there's really nothing the Republicans or anyone or the Democrats for that matter can do to, to, to stop it. I mean, mm-hmm. there will, you know, you see with immigration, they're trying to reduce, you know, minorities coming in because it's a much with birth rates. It's, a, you know, that's the, the, the population that's kind of exploding in this country. You can't fight it, and yeah. it will happen. And you know, the next generation, for whatever we say about millennials, they're, you know, <clears throat> they're much more accepting and tolerant uh, of, yeah, you know, of difference of women, of of different genders, of of race. I mean, it's just it's like a non-issue to them, you know. Um, and that will that is what we need to see happen. Mm-hmm. So, as you know, it's got to be the long game, Trump. Very, very well may win re-election. Mm-hmm. 
But I think he is – his presidency will be the mark of the end of a of a of sort of this fundamental switch that it will – after him, it will start going in a different direction. And you know, um, this is a long time coming. It's been you know, this country was funded founded for um, white men who owned land, mm-hmm. right? And we're slowly chipping away at that. But it's it will happen. It will change. It's just that we can't get so caught up. As crazy as it sounds, Trump's presidency is short term. Yeah, really, the long term of this country is where it goes. You know, hundred years from now, two hundred years from now, and I think that. As difficult as it is to think of that way, we are on the precipice of fundamental change. And that's – it's hard now, but once we cross that Rubicon, once we cross mm-hmm. that, that line and we look back, it will be very satisfying to see right. we changed and it will happen. Well, I'll tell you when you were saying that, honestly, mm-hmm. and I'm not, I'm not kidding, I got like a joyful feeling inside and – I mean, I and, and what that tells me, I'm really, really, really working on focusing on my um, intuition and what, you know, what I feel when I hear certain things. And just listening to you say that, it like, I'm not kidding, warmed my heart. <laughs> so well, It's what we have to hang on to because yeah. there's a reality that Trump may very well be around for yeah. another four years. And we can't get hung up on that. Like, we yeah. have to f- focus on pushing through that change and every corner that we can, whether it's where you work and making sure, you know, I heard here, I'll, I'll leave you with this. I heard a great quote by, um, um, the, uh, Habib, I can't remember his last name. He's in Washington. He's the, um, God, he's the Lieutenant governor and, uh, Cyrus, Cyrus, that's it. And he said, uh, you know, it's when you have privilege, people say, check your privilege at the door. Mm-hmm. And the reality is you shouldn't do that. What you should do is use, keep hang on to your privilege, but use your privilege to help people that don't have it. <laughs> and I think that's really important that we yeah. can, you know, from a grassroots level, whether you're working at a supermarket or you're working at a law firm or you're working in a university, whatever it is, you know, if you're, uh, you know, if you want to be an ally here to shepherd through change, be that ally. Shepherd yeah. that change in. Don't fight it. Don't, you know, acknowledge that, you know, in many, you know, give someone a chance. Let them climb into, you mm-hmm. know, a job. Let them, whether it's university or giving, you know, give that person a chance. Use your privilege to help someone who doesn't have it. Mm-hmm. And look, there's so many stories of, you know, the lack of equality between someone who's black and someone who's white, whether it's a legal system, whether it's employment, whether it's university, whatever it might be. You know, I think we all have that opportunity to push that change. And we talk about grassroots. It does not have to be someone running for Congress or, you know, a legislative body. It could be using an office and looking at 20 candidates and deciding who you're going to hire. Mm-hmm. That might be the change that we can push through. And it's incremental and it's slow, but it's, it's important. And, yeah. you know, you can make a difference on a personal level by embracing that. And I, so I go back. Don't check your privilege at the door. Use it to help someone who doesn't have it. That's perfect advice. I'm totally there. Um, talking to you has been so fascinating, and I hope that maybe one day you'll return. <laughs> <laughs> I'm happy to. Anytime. I, you know, I'm always thrilled to do that. Awesome. Well, thank you for being on. I'm going to put all of your information in the text of the Patreon description. That will include your um, the link to your book and your uh, Twitter and all that good Great. stuff. So thank you so much for being on the show today. Of course. Thanks. All right. Well, you take care. You got it. Talk to you soon. Okay. Bye-bye. 
I really enjoyed that conversation and was actually a little surprised by it. And only in that he was, um, I don't know, I, I can't even say why I was surprised by it. I didn't expect to go off. And, yeah, I had different questions set, but then he just set the tone and I just liked where we were going. So, I mean, I had asked some of those questions, but I, I didn't get to a bunch of them. Um, he's a, such a, I, I, I probably overuse this word, but he's so interesting to me. I mean, that's why I do this show because I want to have people who I find interesting on. And of course he's interesting. Um, I always love talking to someone who um, has any understanding of Russia at all, because I think that so many people don't when I talk about my experience and what I know, it's, it's like people just don't get it. You know, I mean, they can understand what I'm saying, but they, nobody can go back and, and, and walk around in Soviet Russia anymore. I mean, I'm sure Russia right now, there are similarities, but um, it's, it's been more westernized. And I think that would be surprising for me to go over there and look at it now, because when I was there, it was dank. I mean, there were some beautiful buildings and there was some really great, you know, I mean, I went to the Bolshoi uh, ballet and I, you know, had, and of course that would be for the top 1%, the oligarchs, but I had the opportunity to see some really beautiful things in Russia, but overall it was dank and it was so gloomy, you know, I mean, even a sunny day, there was just a gloom that, that, and granted, most of it has to do with the climate over there, but it was just the attitude. I mean, when you would walk down the street, you would see the people dressed in, and the, again, this is Soviet Russia, not modern day Russia, but the way that people were dressed, it was just, you know, basic. Everything was basic. Nothing was fancy. Nothing was um, special. It was just bland and dank and dark and uh, you know, even I always was tripping out when I would go, there was this store, uh, located close to where I used to live. And as a kid, I mean, I feel really fortunate because I would just go out by myself and roam around. And there was a woods right next to my, the apartment where I lived. And we had this huge pond that everybody could go ice skating, which I definitely took advantage of. Um, but then across the street, I lived in this place called Abruchava Chitiri, which was Abruchava 4, the name of the whatever I lived, building street, whatever. Um, but like across the street, there were um, stores. And so one of them was a store for women, women's cosmetics and um, perfume and things like that. And I was always like tripping out over the fact that the makeup literally smelled like, or I'm sorry, looked like the Barbie makeup or like kid makeup and perfume smelled like kid perfume that you would find in the United States. It would, you know, for kids, it was really bad. So, um, it's nice to have an opportunity to talk to someone who, um, even though he wasn't in Russia, he experienced and dealt with Russians and that whole sinister thing. So I hope you enjoyed the show. I certainly did. Uh, and both of us have a little bit of a cough. So please excuse that. I know it's that time of year. Plus, my biopsy and all that, which I'm going to get into in my next segment for patrons only. Be sure to listen to that talking about Steve Schmidt and my throat biopsy. You don't want to miss it. <laughs> don't forget. You can find me on Twitter at author Kimberly K I M B E R L E Y. You can also find my books, Peyton's choice, the Virgin diaries, ain't no sunshine. And Oh my God, what was my other book? Um, can't even remember the name of my book. See, I had this like mental thing that I was going to forget and I did. American Woman, The Pole Dance. There are four books. 
over at Amazon, Kimberly Johnson. You can find all that there. Don't forget, listen to the Patrons Only Show. We will see you on Wednesday with Steph Walton. Take care of everybody. Yeah.